Um, First Peter, we uh, move into chapter 3 now. Last week was the, the very quick flyby of chapter 2, sort of digested a lot, and I'm slowing down this week. We're only doing the first 12 verses, in fact, even really the first 8, 9 verses of, of chapter 3 in First Peter, so you can turn there, and there's a Bible in front of you probably if you didn't bring one, First Peter chapter 3, and uh, I'll begin by reading the verses that we're going to look at, and uh, after reading God's Word, we'll move into uh, seeing what he has to say from it. First Peter 3, 1 to 12. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing." For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to the prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we we move into, Peter's been talking about who we are as Christians, who we are in Christ and how we are to live. You remember that, how we're a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, those who are called out of darkness into life, all of that from last week. That's who we are. And then he talked about how we are to live in the different spheres of the world. And his initial initial examples were in the areas or in the context of the world at large, how we relate to governments. That was in, in 2.13. He said, submit to all worldly authorities. And then not only governments, but then he started to talk about employees. He said that as servants, we are to submit to our masters. And so you submit at work. And Peter anchors all of this example of how we're to live as Christians in the example of Christ. You remember right there at the end of, of chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, he talks about Christ because of what Christ Jesus has accomplished on the cross. We as Christians living now have this example in Christ and this power in Christ to be able to live submitted lives in the world and that through living those submitted lives we have this great testimony to the world around us that they can't accuse us of anything, that they are marvel at our, at our grace and at our forgiveness and at our love and that in the last days they might come ultimately to glorify God. That was his message. And now Peter moves into a far more personal sphere or a far more personal area of our life. How does our identity as saints, as a royal priesthood, as God's chosen people, affect our relationship in the home, in this personal area of our life with our spouse, whether our spouse is a believer or not? And then he also adds a comment uh, about the church, about how all of us, all of you are to live. And so this 
one common thread, first of all, before I begin, that I want you to see. There's this one common thread that Peter is weaving through his teaching here that we picked up on in the last couple of verses there in verse 10. As we have this identity as saints and as we have this behavior as saints, Peter intends us to understand that there's a very practical blessing that flows out of this behavior. And so if you go back to 2.19, he says this finds favor with God. And then in verse 2.20, he says this finds favor with God. And then in 3.3, he says this is precious in God's sight. And then in 3.7, that your prayers are unhindered. And then in 3.8, that you might obtain a blessing. And then in 3.10, to love life and see good days. And then in 3.12, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and ears, and his ears are open to their prayer. And so in a matter of about 20 verses, you see here seven times... I just want you to see this thread that Peter's weaving through here. Seven times in 20 verses, Peter has stated the personal benefit that he hopes that Christians will receive as they conform themselves more and more into the likeness of Christ and their behavior. So it's like a needle and a thread sort of going through the tapestry or the embroidery that Peter is saying that God is pleased, that you will find favor, that your, your prayers will be answered, that his eyes are towards you, that his ears are open. And 3.10 states it very clearly that for those who want to love life and see good days will behave this way. Who doesn't want to love life and see good days, right? Isn't everybody sort of looking for good days and to be able to love their life? And Peter says here that this is not just in chapter 1. You remember he talked about this eternal inheritance in heaven that is kept for you and preserved for you unspoiled in heaven and that as Christians our hope is in that unspoiled eternal salvation that we have, an inheritance that's coming. But now in chapter 2 and 3, Peter is sort of weaving through here the reality that as Christians, we can expect to see good days and love life even in this life, even as Christians suffering in this world. And so if we conform our behavior to be like Christ, Peter doesn't want us to, to forget the fact that God is pleased with that and that there's favor to be found and that we can love life and see good days. And this can be especially true in our most personal of relationships with our spouses. If you want to love life and see good days, this is about as close to the Bible comes to saying, happy wife, happy life. Right? Peter is saying, if you want to love life and see good days, you're going to have this good behavior in this sphere of your marriage. Right? That you will behave this way so that your life can be good and you can see good days. And so in chapter 3, Peter turns now to how we behave in our marriage and as members of the church and, and how does Peter call us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to live as husbands and wives. Now it takes only a casual glance around the bookstore or if you look at a magazine rack or you watch some daytime TV to see that there have been rivers and rivers of ink written and decades of airtime given to domestic relationships and relationships between men and women in general and husbands and wives in particular. You have men are from Mars and women are from Venus and you have uh, things like, um, you know, you're speaking with your blue megaphone but I'm listening with my pink ears and you got the whole pink and blue thing that goes on. You've got the five love languages. You've got the languages of apology, love and respect. Um, the whole Gary Smalley Institute and all of that. I mean, the list goes on and on and on as, as people have written and talked and taught about the differences and the reality of the, of the gender uh, communication and the gender relationship issue. And Peter knows that there are gender differences 
And those gender differences result in typical struggles. He knows there are ways in which the genders can influence one another most effectively. Peter also knows that women and men by nature and by culture and by tradition and by law and by politics and everything else, that men and women occupy different roles in society and they face different pressures and different struggles and different challenges. And so as Peter writes here, this is not some attempt at chauvinism. It's a a practical wisdom that Peter has for Christian men and women who live under these pressures that are social and traditional and legal and political and everything else, the roles that they have, biological even. And Peter has been married a long time, and at this point he's writing this letter, he's speaking from experience, and he's also speaking from the guidance of the Holy Spirit on how men and women can relate to each other as Christians in marriage. But these husband and wife texts are often difficult to understand. I will grant you that. They seem culturally far removed from us today. Whenever we approach these marriage texts or these these gender texts in the Bible, we think it was the first century. It was the Middle East. It was so culturally and historically distant from us, very removed from us today. And this is the really important part for us. It's hard for us then to process them in their own context without us being influenced by our current environment of language and gender politics. And so so as I go into this today, what I hope to do, and you'll bear with me, is what I hope to do is unpack what Peter is writing in the first century in a way that brings to light the meaning of the text in the 21st century. Okay, So as Peter is writing here in the first century, this is the Holy Spirit writing through the Apostle Peter writing down truths that are true for all time. But we have to make sure that we unpack them and process them as we understand them in our time. And uh, that we understand them and understand that whether it's a pink or blue ears or megaphone that we're looking through or glasses that we're seeing through, that we're looking through the glasses of our own culture and we're looking through the, and we're listening through the ears of our own century to the words that Peter wrote in the first century. So what does God have to say through Peter? Uh, about husbands and wives. Let's start off. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So we might as well tackle the big one right off the bat, the S word, submission. What does it mean? What doesn't it mean? And there's three points to this this initial point that Peter makes about to be subject to your own husbands. There's three points that I want to make to take from the text here before we begin to apply it. First of all, I want you to notice that this submission is unique to spouses. Okay, it's subtle in the English. It's there, but it's a little bit subtle in the English. And it's more obvious in the Greek that this is a unique, one-of-a-kind submission of a wife to her husband, not the submission in this particular way of all women to any man. You understand what I'm saying? That would be really strange indeed. When you think of the attitude or the posture that Wendy has towards me, that is not the same sort of attitude that Wendy takes towards any other man, right? We would be naturally kind of creeped out if another person's spouse looked at us the way they look at their partner, right? Like that would be creepy if if somebody looked to me the way they look to their husband, or if somebody's husband looked to you the way they look to their wife, right? So the, the text here you have to understand here is that every time the Bible speaks of the submission of wives, in the pres- it's in the presence of the possessive pronoun, it's emphatic. Okay, Ephesians 5.22, it's the same phrase. 
that wives be subject to husbands. Colossians 3.18, it's the same phrase. Wives be subject to your own husbands. Titus 2.4, it's the same phrase, but with love, that young women would love their own husbands. And so in the Greek, more obviously than in the English, this strong possessive pronoun distinguishes this kind of submission that is unique of wives to their own husbands. Okay? So that it's, it's a submission that's, that's special within the marriage relationship. Secondly, the, the second thing I want to see about submission, or this be subject, is it's a statement of order, not of value. It's a statement like, like B follows A and C follows B. To be subject to is not that B is less valuable a letter than A, but that it follows A in the alphabet. Or perhaps more appropriately, you know, you could look at it this way, that Q is always followed by a U in the English language. You don't find a Q without a U, and U always follows Q. The the be subject to isn't a statement of value, it's a statement of order. It's This is the order of things. And so it's not saying that the Q or the U is more important, it's just saying that U follows Q, and they're both important, they're both valuable in the sound that we make with Q and U. And so to be subject to means to follow in this order. And then thirdly, that submission is a trait of Jesus. And this is much, there's a lot more on this subject, but I don't want to overshadow the whole text just on submission. But for now, these three points will do. But most importantly, understand that submission is not presented here in First Peter as a trait that finds its source in women. It is a trait that finds its source in Jesus. Submission is a trait that, that Jesus, that we have from Jesus that women and men adopt. Right? It's not a trait of women that is a natural order. And, and where we get that from and what we see is what I touched on before is, is that first word, likewise. What's the likewise there for? Right? It's in the same way that. The very first word is likewise. And if you go right up above, what is the likewise? The likewise as Jesus submitted. As Jesus shed his blood on the cross. As Jesus submitted to the will of the Father to be the sacrifice for us. And so the likewise of submission is that submission is a trait of Jesus that women and men are to take from Jesus. And so it, it's not a trait of ourselves. And so submission is this new kind of self-sacrificing love. It's the agapeo love. It's the ectinos love that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That stretching love of Jesus that, that reveals itself in this humility, that reveals itself in this ordering of ourselves to put ourselves second to those that we love. And so submission correctly understood as Peter speaks of it, first and foremost, is is the Christ-like submission unique to Christian wife, to her own husband, and not a statement of value, but an expression of love. And the application to men, so men, you've been listening to this, right? You understand the implications that our Christian wives offer to us a unique form of love, right? That they offer to us a form of love that comes to us only from them and only to us. And there's no other love like it in the whole universe because this submission love comes only from them and it's only for us. And that love and that attitude and that bearing in which they carry it out had better be precious to us because it is only for us. Right, men? So you're getting it that this 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 subject to that that your wife gives you, this love that she expresses in this way, is only for you. And its uniqueness tells you how precious it is. And I'll tell you how precious it is. Verse 4 says it's precious to God. So guys, if this kind of submission and this kind of love that, that your wife offers you is precious to God, it had better be precious to you. And you should not abuse it. 
You should not revile it. You should not take it for granted. You should not be indifferent to it. If you do any of those things, well, you're a fool, frankly. And, you know, so we'll get to husbands in a few minutes. But we have to understand that even as Peter is talking to wives here, husbands, you have to understand that this unique love that comes only from them and only for you is precious and needs to be cherished. Now, moving on to the next part of the verse, we can see and know how this being subject to can't be a statement of value or of worth because actually it's because of the situation that Peter raises in the next sentence. He says that this this Christian woman... So that even if some men, some husbands do not obey the word, that's the word of the gospel, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so you may ask, you know, what does this quiet conduct, what does this, this unique love that this Christian woman is showing, you know, on their, and influencing their unbelieving husbands have to do with how Christian women should consider their value and how does it apply? Well, just follow along the advice that Peter gives here. Understand the circumstances. Here's the situation. Peter has to give this advice precisely because of the value that Christian woman knows she bears in Christ. So he lays out a scenario here where a woman is a Christian, but her husband is not, or at least clearly not following Christ obediently. So now imagine this Christian woman in the first century where she is traditionally, legally, and culturally the property of her husband, but then Jesus comes along, she goes to this new Christian gathering or whatever, she finds out the truth about God, the reality of Jesus, and she understands her value as a child of God, and she understands her worth in the eyes of God, and she's been set free by Jesus Christ. She understands the principle of Galatians 3.28, which says that in Christ there is neither male nor female, we are all one in Christ, and this Christian woman realizes that in Christ she's reached a level of value that her husband, her current unbelieving husband, doesn't understand, and the world doesn't equate men and women equal, heirs of the grace of God, as equal children of God, but Jesus does, and she knows that now, and she's free in Christ, and she has this new Lord, a new master. It would be easy for her to treat her husband with disdain it would be easy for her to treat her husband with indifference or even rejection but peter says this to her essentially because you know your worth in christ christian woman because you know your place in relation to god ahead of your unbelieving husband don't demand your rights don't lord it over your unbelieving husband don't put him down because he doesn't know what you do Be subject to your husband and show him this submissive love of Christ that you've been shown so that he doesn't revile you in return or doesn't treat you with disdain in return, but he can be won over without you even explaining to him the difference in your life. Because you know your self-worth, because you know your value to God, you have the confidence to love your husband in this way. And it's ironic, it sounds a little bit upside down, but it's exactly because this woman does fully know her true worth and has a new master in Jesus that she's able to happily and willingly and graciously take on this attitude of love towards her husband, even if he is an unbelieving husband. And by her actions, without a word, but by her attitude, win an unbelieving husband over to the word of the gospel. The greatest form of evangelism, and Peter already talked about in this in the spheres of government, in the spheres of work, and in the spheres of the world in chapter 2, the greatest form of evangelism we have is our conduct. We win the opportunity to share the word by our conduct without using words. And so Peter is simply reflecting here in the area of marriage 
the approach of a Christian in every other area of life. It's true in government that Christians have a new king. But having a new king, are we supposed to throw off the shackles of earthly authority and, and, and in rebellion or in disdain? No, Peter says that we're to submit to earthly authorities so that we can make, they might give glory to God in the end. And as Christians, we are now servants of Christ Jesus. And as his servants, are we then supposed to rebel against our earthly employers and say, I have a new master now. I'm a bond slave of Christ. I don't have to listen to you, you know, boss, because I got a new person. No, Peter says that we still submit to our earthly employers. And now Peter shows that because we live in this new relationship with Jesus and God as new creations of infinite worth, do we throw off our earthly relationships and look at our unbelieving husbands or our unbelieving wives with disdain and not love them in a submitting way? No, we submit to them as well, Peter says. In fact, we're able to submit properly in love and humility exactly because we are Christians. And so that's what Peter is saying here to this this Christian woman who has this unbelieving husband or this husband who's not following in obedience to Christ. And it's this upside-down reality of God's kingdom that because we are free, we have the self-confidence and the self-worth not to need to lord it over others. And not to, we, because we are free, you know, we don't have to... Uh, our confidence and our self-worth doesn't come from proving ourselves as equal or superior to others. It comes from our inner knowledge of our value and our worth to God. It's our humility in our newfound freedom that provides opportunity for the gospel. And I'm going to use that as a bridge into talking about the husbands for a little bit here. I'm going to move from wives and, and skip down to husbands with another sort of first century clarification and then come back to one more point on wives. In verse 7, if you'll jump ahead with me for a minute, it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. And so there's that word likewise again, or in the same way. What does that likewise for the husbands reflect back on? Likewise, in the same way. Likewise, husband, men, and all you unmarried men and teenagers, consider this for your future. This in the same way picks up on the in the same way as wives, and also in the same way as Christ. And so there's really no dodging out of our own unique form of love that we are to show our wives and only to our wives. Men, we have a unique form of love that we only show our, our wives and we show it to them only and it only comes from us. And so they are to receive from us the same. There's only one love like this in the universe because it's the only love that they're going to receive from you and only you. And what is that love? Well, what does Peter say here? He says it's a little, it's a little bit different than the one he talks about for, for the women. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Specifically, he says here that we are to know our wives. To live in an understanding way is literally in the Greek, katanosis. Katanosis means in accordance with knowledge. Right? So men, we are to live with our wives and love our wives in accordance with knowledge. Like I said, Peter's no dummy. He's a man. In fact, Peter's a pretty typical man. He is an argumentative, blustering, you know, flexing, macho man. Peter's hauling nets. He's jumping out of boats. He's swinging swords. That's Peter, right? We know Peter. He's a man, a man's man. But later in life now, many years later, Peter, this tough guy, he knows his gender weakness. Men, we are pretty dumb. We rarely engage with our wives in a catagnosis way, according to knowledge. 
And Peter is going right after our weak spot here. He's going right after our Achilles heel. He's saying, men, you need to love your wives. You need to relate to your wives out of knowledge. Now, why do I say that? Peter says, be knowledgeable about our wives. Be students of your wives. Know who they are. Know what makes them tick. Know what it is that your wife loves. Know what it is that she hates. Know what makes them laugh. Know what makes them cry. Know the position that they hold in society, where they are at work, what their hopes are, what their fears are, and care for them and their needs and their their vulnerabilities. And now why do I say it like that? And it seems like I, the last part there, I'm sort of making them out to be weak, but that's not what I mean. And it's not expressly what Peter means either when he goes on to say, showing them honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And I used the word there when I say care for them and and understand and know their vulnerabilities. I use vulnerability on purpose because that's what we're talking about here. We're moving from the first century to the 21st century and Peter is acknowledging the same thing here as he did above, that these Christian women, even though they are fully self-assured, even though these Christian women are fully aware of their self-worth and are not afraid of anything, they are still the more vulnerable vessel in society. They are still more at risk than their male partners. And that is very true in Peter's time and I could argue that it's still true now, that women still are the more vulnerable gender in society. Politically, economically, again, even biologically. This is just a reality that Peter is trying to address with wisdom. And so he says, men, you are to love your wives in this unique way and you are to love them from knowledge. Know your wife. How many of your wives would just love you to know them, right? To really know them and to love them out of your knowledge of them. And then know where they stand and what their vulnerabilities are so that you understand how uh, to love them in that reality. So show her honor in a way that society doesn't honor them. Show her her full value and her full worth in a way that society still doesn't yet honor her because she is the more vulnerable vessel, even today. And then if you keep reading... He says, honor her at her full value in God's eyes, because if we just keep reading, Peter says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. They're equal heirs with you in grace, and so treat them that way. And then Peter finishes off his instruction to husbands with this amazing statement, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now imagine, you've got to listen to me here on this, men. Listen to this. Imagine this. Your access to God is subject to your treatment of your wife. Like you can wiggle around this one way or another if you want. You can try and make arguments about the submissiveness, submissiveness of women as some sort of natural order, or you could come at it and say that God values men more than women and Adam and Eve and all this stuff, so he made women subject to us, or some crazy idea that ignores Galatians 3:28 and you know a hundred other verses. But you cannot dodge the value of this statement. God says that before he tends to our prayers, men. He checks how we've been treating his daughter. God says, before I listen to your prayer, I'm just checking my my daughter over here that you married and seeing how you're treating her. Because our father-in-law is God, right? And we married his daughter. And he's saying, I'll get to your prayers when I see how you've been treating my daughter. The wives are the children of God, and he's our father-in-law. And how well you treat his daughter is how attentive he is to your prayers. And so don't be fools, men. 
Esteem your wives above everything else. Okay, so I have to start wrapping this up here, but there's just one more thing, this one more point that I have to get in here before, and we go back to the wives again, back in verses 3 to 6. So if you look at me at verses 3, he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So a first in a 21st century application again. We keep trying to draw this text up into the 21st century. And you think it's a 21st century phenomenon that the pressures of women to focus on how they look? Body worship is hardly anything new. Peter is addressing exactly this point right here. The external, the pressure on women for the external beauty is as real in first century Palestine as it is in 21st century Canada. Right, like I'm sure they didn't have quite as many magazines on the rack at the checkout counter, but there is pressure on women to look a certain way. And Peter is addressing that right here. And his answer to that pressure on women and the adorning of their bodies and the hair and the makeup and everything else and the jewelry, his answer to that is that image is not more valuable than character. Image is not more valuable than character, Peter says. Peter makes Specific to women, what we know is true of God for all people. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, you remember as, as Samuel is choosing David, who's like the youngest and the smallest of all the big burly brothers. He says, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's what Peter is saying here about the adorning of women. Peter means that true beauty is not a condition of the time that a woman spends in front of her mirror, but true beauty is a condition of the time excuse me, that women spend in reflection on the Word of God. James 1, 23-25 says that the Word of God is like a mirror, and if you look carefully into that perfect law of the Word of God, it sets you free and God will bless you. And that's what Peter is saying here of women. He's saying that image is not more beautiful than character. And that our adornment is internal, not external. And I won't spend a lot of time on that point. It's probably the most clear part of this text um, that we understand. But let's finish with verses 5 and 6 that speaks to this adornment. It says, For this is how the holy women of old or of the past, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I just love this verse. I love everything about this verse that Peter has written. I love the identification of holy women, that they are identified by their hope in God, that that is what makes them holy because they hope in God. And I I love the word adorned, that they bore their holiness and their hope as an adornment, as an attitude, a character, a nature, as something you could see. They bore their holiness as clothing, that enhance their beauty. And I love that Peter draws the connection from those holy women of old to the women of his day, and now we can draw it to the women of our day, that we are their children if we adorn ourselves like them. And then finally, the link that Peter makes to a companion verse in Psalms here, that these women do not fear any frightening thing. These are not weak women. These are not 
fragile women that shrink back in fear. That is not what submission can mean. It is not what the kind of love and hope that these women have can possibly mean, or Peter couldn't write this, because these are women that do not fear any frightening thing. A Christian woman doesn't put her hope in her husband or in getting a husband. She does not put her hope in her looks or in her ability to distract or control men by her looks. She puts her hope in the promises of God, and she's described in Proverbs 31, 25, sorry. In Proverbs 31, 25, this woman is described. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She laughs at everything the future will bring and might bring because she hopes in God. This is the picture that Peter paints of this woman, this wife, this Christian wife. She looks away from the troubles and the obstacles of life or even the troubles and the obstacles in her marriage that seem to make her future bleak and she focuses her attention on the sovereign power and love of God who rules in heaven and works on earth for the good of his people. And she knows her Bible, and she knows her theology, and she knows the sovereignty of God, and she knows his promise that he will be with her and help her and strengthen her no matter what. That is the unshakable root of Christian womanhood. Okay? And it's no more clearly stated by Peter than here in verses 5 and 6. That's why I love these verses, because he just sums up in these verses all of this about these holy women of old who fear nothing that is frightening and who wear their faith like an adornment that enhances their beauty. So don't let anyone tell you that the Bible doesn't honor women or establish women in their rightful place as equal heirs of the grace of God. And husbands, you get a wife like this. You had better love her in an understanding way, and you better know her and cherish her husbands because these women are amazing. Husbands and wives, Peter has practical wisdom here for you. We need to read the wisdom that Peter has laid down for us. We need to study it and live it. And I'll just remind you of that thread that I started off with that Peter was weaving through this text. Seven times in 20 verses, Peter said that our right behavior, that our growing up into our salvation, that our molding ourselves into following the example of Christ to submit to one another in this way that Peter is talking about submitting here, wives to husbands and husbands to wives. Likewise, this mutual submission as we grow up into our identity and into our maturity as Christians, it will lead to God's favor and God's blessing, as he said in verse 10. If you desire to love life and to see good days, this is how you will cherish your spouse. This is how wives will love husbands. This is how husbands will love wives. Being able to love life and experience good days are as near and as close to you as your willingness to live out the reality of your Christian faith in your most intimate earthly relationship in your marriage. Let's pray. Father God, first of all, thank you for getting my voice through this and we just thank you for your word. Thank you that you could bless us this day with the teaching of the Apostle Peter. I pray that we would understand and be able to read your verses, even in the 21st century, with an understanding of what Peter was writing in the 1st century. That we would understand what is meant by women loving their husbands, their own husbands, in a unique way that's special only to them. And for husbands to love their wives out of knowledge of them, to be students of their wives and loving them uniquely as only they can love their wives.
and that they would each cherish this love that is for each other. And that there are good days and a love of life that is available for them and available for all of us if we would grow up and mature into our salvation in this way. Father God, what a testimony you have made marriage to the world of your love for us. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, I know it's a mystery, but I speak of Christ and his church. You've given us in marriage a picture of the submission of Christ and a picture of the headship of Christ, all in one. And you've given us a picture of mutual love that the world just can't understand when we get it right. And so, Father, I would pray above all that you would protect our families, protect our marriages, give our husbands and wives an unbelievably deep love for one another, that they would cherish one another, and that their kids would see it, and it would be something that they desire, and it would only be explained by your love of us and the sacrifice and example of your son, Jesus Christ. Father God, thank you again for your word. We pray that it would change us. In Jesus' name, amen.